Welcome to TanakhStudy.com. My name is Jonathan Snowbell, and we are continuing learning the second section of Parshat Beha'alotecha. Today we will be beginning chapter 9, uh, verses 1 to 14, and we will be discussing the Korban Pesach, the Passover sacrifice. We'll begin in verse 1. Sinai <laughs> Thus Hashem spoke to Moshe in the wilderness of Sinai, in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Now let the sons of Israel observe the Passover, from now on we'll call it the Pesach, at its appointed time. On the fourteenth day of this month, in the afternoon, you shall observe it at its appointed time. You shall observe it according to all of its statutes and according to all of its ordinances. So Moshe told the sons of Israel to observe the Passover. They observed the Pesach in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at, in the afternoon, in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that Hashem had commanded Moshe, so the sons of Israel did. Recall the discussion we had about the dating of the seventh chapter of Bimidbar at the end of Parashat Naso, the day that Moshe completed establishing the Mishkan. Going back earlier in time, to the, is that going back earlier in time to the first day or the eighth day of the first month, in contrast to the beginning of Sefer Bimidbar, which is the first day of the second month, or the minority opinion that states that chapter 7 is in chronological order, as in, and it is in the second month after the census. In contrast to the seventh chapter, there is no doubt that the ninth chapter, our chapter, is out of chronological sequence. The beginning of the Sefer is in the second month, as we mentioned, and this chapter goes back to the first month, to the sacrificing of the Korban Pesach. It is interesting to note that even those commentaries who claim that the seventh chapter begins on the first day of the first month, like Rashi and Ramban, dis- they discuss the famous phrase, Ein Torah, there is no chronological order in the Torah, specifically here, in our chapter. The Sifri, the Midrash Halacha of the Tanaim on this chapter, that we will mention shortly that Rashi quotes, is the source for this discussion of this famous phrase. Why delay the discussion to this chapter if it is already necessary to discuss it in the seventh chapter, if the seventh chapter too is out of chronological order? Could it possibly be that the Sifri itself believes in the minority position that we presented at the end of Nassau based on the Abarbanel, that the dedication of the altar and the offerings of the Nisim were in fact in the second month meaning that the seventh chapter is not a chronological conflict, and this chapter is the first chronological deviation? If that is true, what can we say for the commentators who believe that the seventh chapter was in the first month? Why do they choose to discuss the issue of chronology in our chapter? 
One explanation is that those commentators were merely quoting the Sifri that makes the comment here. But they too should have been troubled by the Sifri. How do they understand the Sifri, discussing it only in the ninth chapter? The only explanation I can offer for those commentaries is that they believed that the lack of chronological order here is explicit, while the lack of chronological order in chapter 7 is not, and therefore it is discussed here and not there. Let's now go back to the episode itself. Two basic questions need to be asked about this episode. Why is it, in fact, out of chronological order? And why must B'nai Israel be commanded to offer the Korban Pesach at this time? Why must they be commanded? Were they not commanded to do so in Sefer Shemot as a permanent mitzvah? Regarding the chronology, Rashi quotes the above-mentioned Sifri and an additional one, saying that this episode contains an implicit criticism of B'nai Israel. This was the only time in 40 years in the desert that B'nai Israel offered the Pesach sacrifice. Therefore, the Torah did not want to begin Sefer B'midbar, the first thing chronologically, with an episode that contained a criticism of B'nai Israel. Rashi's explanation makes three assumptions. One, B'nai Israel only offered this Korban Pesach over the 40 years, something not said explicitly in the Torah. Two, they should have offered throughout the 40 years in the desert, but did not offer the Korban Pesach. Once again, something that's not addressed explicitly. And number three, the failure to offer the Korban Pesach was a sin, and therefore not something that we want to dwell on or mention, at least not at the beginning of the Sefer. Two adaptations of Rashi are offered on the basis of disagreeing with some of these assumptions, though ultimately in the vein of Rashi's comment. The Ramban, quoting Chazal, says that B'nai Israel were supposed to bring the Korban Pesach during the 40 years in the desert, like Rashi. However, differing from Rashi, they did not do so because of disregard for the commandment. Why would Moshe allow them to sin in this way? Rather, they were halachically unable to offer the Korban Pesach. Why? Only one whose sons are circumcised may offer the Korban Pesach. In other words, not only do I myself have to be circumcised, but if I'm commanded to circumcise my son or my slave, and I have not yet circumcised them, if I have not yet circumcised them, I must circumcise them, otherwise I can't offer the Korban Pesach. In the desert, in the aftermath of the sin of the spies, according to Chazal, the northern wind did not blow, and therefore it was deemed dangerous to, do, to perform the circumcision. Since the sons born that year and every following year were not circumcised, the Korban Pesach could not be offered in the desert. The criticism then of B'nai Israel, according to this approach is the sin of the spies that stopped the northern wind from blowing, stopped them from being circumcised, and, not, and therefore not, having the, not being able to offer the Korban Pesach. Not the sin of not offering the Korban Pesach, as Rashi uh, stated. Just as a parenthetical remark, the fact that Ben Israel were not circumcised in the desert can be supported by explicit verses in Sefer Yoshua in the context of Korban Pesach that was offered upon their arrival in Eretz Yisrael. The discussion of the northern wind and whether they had sons that were not circumcised at that time 
is not something that's explicit in the verses. The Chizkuni says that Bnei Israel were not meant to offer the Korban Pesach in the desert at all. The Torah in Sefer Shmot explicitly states that the Korban Pesach is commanded in Eretz Yisrael. This episode is the unusual one. Thus, the criticism, like the Ramban, is not about the fact that they, didn't, they did not offer Korban Pesach in the desert, because according to the Chizkuni and others, they were not supposed to. Rather, the fact that they sinned and therefore did not enter Eretz Yisrael for 40 years, and therefore could not bring the Korban Pesach, that is the criticism. All of these explanations offer a very difficult explanation for the lack of chronology. Most, if not all, of this is based on assumptions that have very little basis in the verses themselves. The Ramban himself, not quoting Chazal, offers a more thematic approach to answer the chronological question. Sefer B'midbar deals with the one-time commandments that Bnei Israel were commanded in the desert regarding the Mishkan and the surrounding camp, the Leviim and their unique jobs in the desert, the Nisim and their unique offerings, and only after all that was completed, the Torah turns its attention to more permanent commandments like Korban Pesach. This answer seems to ignore the sections on Nazir and Sotah, on the one hand, that seem to be commanding permanent commandments and not relating to the temporary state in the Midbar. And it also seems to ignore the following chapters, on the other hand, that continue to deal with the dwelling and traveling of the camp in the desert. Another possible explanation for this chronological deviation, I believe, will become clear when we learn the continuation of this chapter. Another under-the-radar discussion that comes up with regard to this commandment of Korban Pesach is where was the Korban offered? For two simple reasons, we assume that the Korban was offered on the altar in the Mishkan. One, in the Halacha we are familiar with, the Korban Pesach is offered on the altar in the Beit Mikdash. And number two, if we assume the mainstream assumption, the Mishkan and the altar were completely dedicated by the 12th of the first month, just in time to offer the Korban Pesach on the 14th of the month. Therefore, it's logical to assume that in fact, when it's described here in our verses that Bnei Israel completed Moshe's orders, commands, they completed it in the Mishkan. Though nothing explicitly about this is stated. However, both of these reasons are questionable. Number one, the first and only Korban Pesach till this point in history was not offered on the altar. Rather, the Korban was a household Korban. The blood was placed on the doorposts of the houses in Egypt. Why should we assume it is different at this point? And if it was different at this point, how were Bnei Israel to understand that? Nothing explicit was said of, on that matter. Number two, if we assume the minority opinion, then the offerings of the Nisim that are described in the Torah as the dedication of the altar did not transpire until the second month. Could the Korban Pesach be offered on the altar before its dedication? Based on these two questions, is it possible that this Korban Pesach too was offered as a household Korban not in the Mishkan, just like the original Korban Pesach in Egypt? 
two apparent difficulties seem to challenge this approach nonetheless. Whereas in Egypt, the the blood was placed on the doorposts to protect them from the plague of the firstborn, here, A, did they even have structures with doorposts that they could place the blood on? And even if they did, what would be the purpose of putting blood on the doorposts with no plague of the firstborn threatening them? Number two, the Torah in Parshat Acharemot prohibits offerings outside of the Mishkan with quite a fierce prohibition, with the chiyuv karet, the punishment of being cut off from Am Yisrael. In order to justify the approach that the Korban Pesach was not offered in the Mishkan, one would have to argue that this prohibition of offering a Korban outside of the Mishkan somehow didn't apply in this instance or did not yet apply at this time. One final note of terminology. We tend to refer to the seven-day holiday beginning on the 15th night of Nisan with the Seder as Pesach. In fact, in the Torah, Pesach refers to the offering, to the Korban. And if it refers to a time, it refers to the 14th of Nisan in the afternoon when the Pesach sacrifice is offered, slaughtered. At this point, I think we've exhausted the discussion of Korban Pesach itself and the chronology with the limited time we have, and we will continue reading our section. But there were some men who were unclean or unpure because of contact with a dead person so that they could not observe Pesach on that day. So they came before Moshe and Aharon on that day. Those men said to him, Though we are impure because of the dead person, why are we restrained from presenting the offering of Hashem at its appointed time among the sons of Israel? Moshe therefore said to them, Wait and I will listen to what Hashem will command concerning you. Why are there people who have come in contact with the dead? Chazal make different suggestions, those who carried Yosef's bones, Mishael and El Tzafan, who took Nadav and Avihu's bodies out of the Mishkan. But Chazal also offer the simple explanation that the Ibn Ezra simply states that the, a camp with this magnitude of people, there were certainly daily deaths, as nature would demand. Those who needed to take care of the bodies would thus be impure and unable to partake in the Korban. But the bigger question is, why the great concern? So if they are impure and the halacha prohibits them from making offerings in general, including Korban Pesach, why ask the question? Clearly, they're exempt. What is the concern of these impure people? The Svarno suggests a moral challenge. How could it be that the people who are doing a good deed by handling, taking care of, and burying the dead are kept out from Korban Pesach? A more simple approach is to note that not offering the Korban Pesach incurs the penalty of karet, being cut off from the Jewish people. Whether or not these people understood that they were exempt from the punishment, the conclusion is the same. If not offering Korban Pesach incurs incurs karet, that means that offering the Korban Pesach is essential to being part of the nation. 
These people did not want to miss out on being part of the, the nation. As they say, Bitoch B'nai Yisrael, as part of the children of Israel. This incident is the first reported incident in which members of the nation approach Moshe to answer a personal question. Clearly this was happening before, as it is described in Parshat Yitro, but as a specific incident, this is the first incident as such. But it is not just a personal question. There's a demand, not what should we do in this instance, but rather how could this be? Why? Lama nigara? I'll just mention briefly, in a, in a parenthetical remark, as we, as we will leave this expansion of this idea to Parshat Pinchas, this incident connects deeply to the incident of the daughters of Tzlovchad and Parshat Pinchas. In both, private people approach Moshe with their question, which is more of a demand. In both, Moshe does not know the answer and needs to approach God. In both, God concurs with the demand. In both, appears a need to be part of something bigger. In our parasha, to be part of the nation, and in Parshat Pinchas, the daughters of Tzlovchad want Tzlovchad to take his rightful place in his family. With almost the exact same language, Lama Nigara is stated here, and as we translated, why are we restrained and there, Benot Slavchad, the daughters of Slavchad, say, Lama Yigara. Exactly the same word. What is God's answer? Let's now continue reading our Psukim. Vaydaber Adonai el Moshe Lemor. Daber el Bene Israel Lemor. Ish, Ish, Ki Yetamel Anefesh. O, Vederech Rechokalachem. O, Ledorotechem. Vyasa Fesach Ladonai. בחודש השני, בארבעה עשר יום, בין הארבעים יעשו אותו, על מצות ומרורים יאכלו, לא ישאירו ממנו עד בוקר, ועצם לא ישברו בו, ככל חוקת הפסח יעשו אותו. והאיש אשר הוא טהור, ובדרך לא היה, וחדל לעשות הפסח, ונכרתה הנפש ההיא מהמאה, כי קורבן אדוני לא הקריב במועדו, חטאו יישא האיש ההוא. Then Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If any of you or of your generations become impure because of a dead person, or is on a distant journey, he may, however, observe the Pesach to Hashem in the second month, on the 14th day in the afternoon, they shall observe it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break a bone of it. According to all the statute of the Pesach, they shall observe it. But the man who is clean and is not on a journey and yet neglects to observe the Pesach, that person shall be cut off from his people, for he did not present the offering of Hashem at its appointed time. That man will bear his sin. If a foreigner sojourns among you, or perhaps a convert, and observes the Pesach to Hashem, according to the statute of the Pesach, and according to its ordinance, so he shall do. You shall have one statute for both the foreigner, the ger, and for the native of the land. God's answer is a second chance, Pesach Sheni. There's a possibility for those who are impure 
from contact from a, with the dead, and in halakha, it's expanded to the other impurities as well, with some minor differences, but also one who is far away. This was not requested by the people in question, but this was added in God's answer. Chazal debate the definition of far away. Is it actually far away from the distance of Modi'in to Yerushalayim, as is Rabbi Akiva's position, accepted by the Ramban, or just outside the Azara, the courtyard of the Beit HaMikdash? Something hard to imagine as defined as far away or distant, but is the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer and adopted by Rashi, which may stem from the dot written in the Torah over the letter He of the word Rechoka. There is an acceptance by God, that something of this magnitude <coughs> demands a second chance. But as verse 13 states, only for a good reason, if one is far away or impure. In halakha, however, even one who is purposely, one who purposely did not offer the Korban Pesach at the original date, may save himself from off, by offering Korban Pesach Sheni. However, if at Pesach Sheni he could not offer the Korban for a legitimate reason, he will not be saved from the karet punishment, since the penalty was already inc incurred previously, and the Pesach Sheni was a way of staving off the existing punishment. The offering of Pesach Sheni is identical to the Pesach offering. Matzah and Maror are eaten with the Pesach Sheni. There is a prohibition of leaving over leftovers, notar, no breaking bones, and though not exp explicitly mentioned, it must be roasted as well. However, Pesach Sheni is not combined with the seven-day holiday. There is no prohibition to do malacha, And more significantly, there is no prohibition to eat or own chametz, leavened bread. Some comments in summary of this parasha of Korban Pesach and Pesach Sheni. This parasha shows <coughs> that the Torah was not a closed book. The people took initiative, made a demand... It made sense, and God concurred and gave a solution. Just like the incident with the daughters of Tzlovchad. The daughters of Tzlovchad were told that they, in fact, will be able to inherit their father. Human initiative fits in well with the themes of Sefer Bemidbar to this point. The husband of the Sota doesn't take his situation as is. He seeks a solution to his problem, whether legitimate or not, as we discussed. The Nazir seeks a higher spirituality. He's not satisfied where he, where he is. He wants more. He takes initiative and he becomes an Azir. The Nasim seek to give and are mandated to give the wagons for the Levim, the oxen, and more significantly, their unique offerings that, as we commented, are not usually possible for an individual to offer. Here too, in our story of Pesach Sheni, these people didn't take their lack of belonging to the nation sitting down. They took initiative and found a solution. This being the case, perhaps we have found an answer to our chronological question with which we opened this shiur. It is true that this parasha opens in the first month out of chronological order from the beginning of the Sefer, which is in the second month. But the point of this section is not really Korban Pesach. It's true, it's here. The point, however, of our section is the chidush, the innovation, 
Pesach Sheni. We already knew about Pesach Rishon in Sefer Shemot, but now we've learned about Pesach Sheni. Pesach Sheni is a halacha that takes place in the second month, which is in chronological order of the Sefer. In order to introduce Pesach Sheni, it had to begin with the original Pesach in the first month. But truthfully, this is a story of the second month and in chronological order. And with this, we conclude our discussion of Pesach Sheni. In our next section, we will continue learning about the Mishkan, traveling in the Mishkan, in the continuation of the ninth chapter, whether we're traveling in the Mishkan by the movement of the cloud, or whether we are traveling in the Mishkan by the uh, blowing of the silver trumpets, and we will see, we will observe, we will read about an actual uh, traveling, the initial traveling of Bnei Israel in the Midbar.